Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Charlie Smith. I'll be reading from my latest novel, Three Delays, my sixth novel, or maybe my ninth, depending on how I'm counting. It's a book that takes place mostly in Miami environs, but also in Istanbul and Venice and various other uh, locales. This is the beginning of the book. I'd returned from Indonesia the year before, sunburned, with a slight drug habit, sporting a fungus under my fingernails. And after receiving my draft classification as an undesirable, I spent six months wandering around Europe with my high school friend Henry Devine, an ex-Green Beret medic who'd been shipped loco out of Vietnam. One night, stoned in Istanbul, shortly after his hair caught fire, and I put it out with my own tender hands. As we lay out on our hotel balcony looking east toward the smoky lights of the Bazin district, Henry put his head on my shoulder. I could smell his scorched hair, a smell like burned peacock feathers, and said, Are you ever getting back together with Alice? I was taken slightly off guard. Her name hadn't come up in a while. No, I lied. I think I'd rather poach in my own spit. Alice and I had been childhood sweethearts, lovers at a young age, but we had broken up, exploded, convulsed, detonated, kaboomed up was more like it, due to our scorpion death fight tendencies and some ugly business in which she and her sister had me arrested for malfeasance, both general and specific. I say broken up, but that wasn't the name for it. Both of us had gone right on being together at a distance, together in our minds. Sometimes she was in the back of my mind, sometimes she was in the front. She was always in there somewhere, circulating. In Venice, not long after this, Henry got sick, and we had to get up in the middle of the night to find a doctor. The hotel manager directed us, and we went up some smelly stairs by a canal and waked a little man in a New York Knicks T-shirt who was angry and sharp in manner, but who told us to come in. Henry lay on a couch in his office while the man probed him. He had a pain in his side that turned out to be appendicitis. The doctor took him to the hospital by boat. I rode with him, and despite Henry's pain and distress, I found it lovely to be riding at night through the canals of Venice. It was very quiet, and the wind picked at the surface of the water and lifted my hair. I smelled the sea, which seemed like some dark and kindly companion traveling along with us. The first floors of the buildings were dark, but in upper stories, lights burned, and I wondered what the people up at this hour might be doing, and wondered if they were men thinking about women they loved and couldn't get to, or women thinking about their marriages, about whether or not they would stay with their husbands or leave to return to their old true loves. 
and then I took Henry's hand, which was hot from the fever, and I held it while the boat ran smoothly on along the canal to the hospital, and the troubles in Turkey seemed far behind us. I felt a deep tenderness for him, as if we had been married many years. The appendix came out smartly, scooped like a melon ball, Henry said later, but an old East Asian fever caught up with him, and he nearly died. They kept him in the hospital for two weeks, then he was moved to a recovery house over on the bayside and back of the barrier islands. It was a pretty monolithic pale blue brick place, his part of it a room on the second floor, looking out over a paved courtyard toward one of the islands, maybe the Lido, or was it the cemetery island? Henry thought he was looking at the cemetery. His fever lingered for three months. I moved into a small apartment I sublet from a man I met at the American Express office. He was pinning the rental notice to the bulletin board when I came up to him. The place was a studio that overlooked a small canal the color of daiquiris. A narrow stone sidewalk ran along one side of the canal, and shops were set back from a pint-sized cluttered street on the other. A trattoria served fish dishes and made sandwiches that I took with me to the hospital every day. A diesel mechanic in the nearby boatyard told me where to get drugs from some Pakistani men who were studying architecture at the university or from friends of theirs. I'd go over to their apartment and get stoned and lie on the floor listening to Armed Forces Radio, Polka Hour, and a strange Western swing program that occasionally seemed to be offering subliminal messages to me. Time was a small boy playing with stones at the edge of the sea, as they say. Fall gave up and handed itself into winter. I began to write poems, which is what I always wanted to do. I started calling Alice every day, but she wouldn't speak to me. I can't talk to you, she'd say, and we'd sit there in silence a couple of minutes listening to the space wind blow through the lines. Then I'd hang up. She waited for me to hang up. I sent her Henry's number at the hospice, and she called him. She didn't have any trouble talking to him. I could tell every time I came into his room if he had talked to her. It was like that. She told him things to tell me. They were simple, adventures-in-her-garden-type things, which strung me out, but half-satisfied me, too. She said the zinnias weren't as tall as her head, she said hail broke the stalks down, and she had to pick all the flowers in one day. Her sister came over and set up a card table out on the paved road and sold them for a dollar a bunch. Henry said, That's nice, isn't it? Yes, I said, It was. She said they were eating hot cucumber pickles she'd put up in the summer, and the tomatoes and the gleaming beans, eating those too. Every day a feast, she said. West Miami backcountry style. I pictured her offering a bean to her husband, then changed that, and pictured her sister getting the bean, but I couldn't hold it and went back to her husband. It wrenched my insides to imagine this, but I couldn't help it. I could see her husband grinning at her, his embouchure gleaming like a licked spot. 
It was just life. I knew that, mixed up and confusing as it always is. And he was probably wondering if he'd done the right thing by marrying her. How could he not wonder this, married to such a woman, this woman, but he had been willing to stand up for before God and man, which I had been unprepared to do. And now he was the one, getting up glumly or with a heart filled with joy from the breakfast table, leaning across the oatmeal dregs to give her a kiss. I cringed a little. It wasn't guilt exactly, the cringe. I don't believe I felt much guilt. It was a kind of existential shudder, a slight allergic reaction to pain and truth, to the helplessness all of us feel before our desires, as sad and ridiculous as those desires so often are, an acknowledgment of fallibility and general human dumbness, and for once, for a moment, a clear sight, a glance, I mean, into the irrepressible and terrifying future awaiting us all that made me wince. I saw this for a second. Did the horn player, her hubby, see anything? Probably not. Or if he did, he was not disheartened. He was a man without pathology, as I understood him, which is what I aspired to be. This aspiration was what drew Alice and me together. One thing. We both wished to be normal in this sense, and raged because we weren't. We had plenty of pathology. But the jazz player, what would happen to him? He would live. He would go on to fame and the earthly vision of happiness. You could tell. In Venice, I thought about this and drank the hard-skinned North Italian wine and sat in an osteria watching soccer games on a television that was set on a wine crate at the end of the bar. She said she had a freezer full of black-eyed peas packed in plastic sacks. The tomatoes, whole, peeled, and red as paint, looked naked and helpless sitting on a white plate. Like little skinned heads, she said. Henry said her husband was often away. Away where? Don't worry, Henry said. The collapse is on schedule. Henry's fever was actually a disease, a malaria-like compilation he'd picked up in Indochina, that made him often stuporous and ignorant, like a man coming off drugs. I'd arrive at eleven in the a.m. to find him snoozing, dribble on his chin, the window open to the Venetian winter, which was cold and ice-strewn and muttered miserably in the naked wisteria vines covering the nail-back shutters. I'd sit with him, try to talk, but he'd be half-deranged, lassitudinous with thoughts of mischances back home. He'd flunked out of college and wound up in the army. He wanted to get married. He wanted to be a doctor, not an ex-medic. And I'd fall asleep over my book and dream he was dying. It was my season of failing to save the dying in my dreams. Henry, my father, mother occasionally, often Alice, I dreamed of and couldn't save them and someone like myself, too. Some substitute character Dream Central came up with, a skinny boy whom I discovered crying into his hands in the bus station, a pox-riddled boy who shrank at my touch. I couldn't do anything for any of them, and this scared me, 
It was too much like life. I waked up crying sometimes, sweaty in the torn armchair. I'd talk at Henry's laid-out form. You never can tell, can you, Henry, what might happen? And he'd lie there, feigning death, which I appreciated, letting that be his answer, his face white, sweat like a fuzz on him. I'd lift his hand to my lips and kiss his fingers one by one. He'd look up at me, turn onto his back with a sigh and look at me, an extremity of tenderness filling his face, and say, I want to live a life filled with regret. I thought it was a beautiful thing for a 22-year-old man to say. Then I'd dial Alice's number and listen to the phone ring. When she answered, I'd hang up after a minute of silence and then sit in the cold room, dumb like some breakdown case, stunned by the power of my longing, gasping, trembling with emotion, her voice having done it to me, the telephone ringing in her house near the monastery, her voice hellowing over the ocean, stronger than the winter and the cold sea breeze, stronger, more powerful, more alive, carrying more Billy referential life, that is, than anything else I could possibly find in this world outside my own screwed-up family. It would knock me out. I'd go down on my knees beside the bed and dial her number again and crouch there with a phone cupped like a conch against my ear and listen. Three rings, four rings, sometimes five rings, and then her voice. She wouldn't talk to me. I tried to get her to, but she wouldn't. You're nuts, Henry said. You have to do something about yourself. I thought so, too. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. 